Did you ever notice how high performers frequently are not followed by a second generation? Meaning, do you think Tiger Woods' daughter is going to be a world champion golfer? How about Tom Brady's son being a world champion quarterback or Sting having a daughter or son who follows in his singer-songwriter world class? How about Maya Angelou, will she have a son or daughter who follows in the kind of writing and poems that she's famous for? Jerry Seinfeld, will he have a son or daughter who's a comic of his proportion? Sadly, no. Yet, frequently, when it comes to family businesses, we expect the next generation to follow in the previous generation's footsteps as if they would have the same level of talent, skill, passion, hard work that the previous generation did. Today, I had the fun of podcast interviewing Carrie Corkin, who blows away all of those rules of thumb. He is a second generation business owner who took the business, the Entwistle Company, to new heights beyond what the previous generations had ever dreamed of. I've been trying to get together and have this interview with Carrie for months because during the quarantine, we were unable to get together. So we ultimately did it in a distributed way. I hope you'll think as I do, it works out great. Carrie has tidbits of learnings, successes, failures, and wisdom for entrepreneurs and would-be entrepreneurs. Hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Here's Carrie. Do you ever think about what are the chapters of your life? Can you name the chapters? Oh, that's an interesting question. So I would say the first chapter as a child was before college. And um, am I supposed to describe the chapters or just name the chapters? Name the chapters. So before college, um, I would say the college years. Um, I would then go probably the 20 years after college, the first 20 working years, and then the years since. The first 20 working years after college and then the years since. So what chapter are we in now? Chapter. Well, I probably just started chapter five. And how would we, what would we name chapter five? Um, after Bigelow. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so in this chapter, many of the people listening to our uh, podcast will know you as a, um, as a business owner and as a CEO of a very successful business. Um, but if you were going to use a noun or two to capture what you do, what would you say? I would say that um, I'm, I, I'm hoping my, a lot of employees don't listen in, but I would say I'm half kindergarten teacher and half um, technical spiritual leader. And, wow, that's those are opposite ends of the spectrum, aren't they? As far as could be. Yeah. So say, can you say more about that? So technical spiritual leader, I get that. But you also have to be kindergarten teacher. Correct. So we joke around. I mean, we, we have a, a wonderful workforce. And we have a 100 people in Hudson and 100 people in, in Danville. And when you have a couple hundred people working for you, you spend a lot of time uh, making sure they all work together. And I say that I'm part kindergarten teacher because that's what my wife used to do before she retired. 
And I would always tell her that our jobs are really not all that much different. Right. So I think just, um, you know, we have, we have a really good crew, but just keeping everybody going in the same direction and um, remembering that is takes some work. As far as technical spiritual leader, I'm not really the the supreme technical person. I, I don't have an engineering background. I have a business background. But at some point, because we make a, a highly engineered, a very technical product with, you know, critical tolerances that um, um, the U.S. military relies on and people can get hurt and you can lose, you know, aircraft and other things if we make mistakes, um, it's always trying to convince them that the product has to be perfect when it goes out and, you know, and, and how do you get there and, and still make money? Right. You know, and, and balance all those things off. So, um, so technical spiritual leader on the one hand of the spectrum on the other end of the spectrum teacher, is, is that what you thought you were going to do when you were a kid? No, I had, I'm not sure I had any idea, even like going off to college, I wasn't sure I had any idea what I wanted to do as a kid. Um, were your parents business owners? My, well, so a very brief entwistle history, you you know, but others wouldn't, is my father was in the real estate business and got involved in um, low-income housing for the federal government back in the 70s when that was considered a great thing to do. It, it was a social experiment that didn't work out all that well, but it was considered quite progressive at the time. And then we had my uncle, Herb, who um, volunteered to um, fly in China with General Chenault back when he was, you know, 18, 19 years old. So he was quite a character. And they bought Entwistle in the 1950s, having never been in the machine shop in their lives and um, as an investment. And so I, I guess up until college, I really hadn't thought much about what I wanted to do, but it was perfectly clear in their minds that once I graduated from college, having spent the outrageous some of $3,000 a year to send me there, I was coming back to work to, you know, to work for them. Really? So that was an expectation by them? Absolutely. Oh, and, and so uh, were, uh, her, and your dad's name was Al? Alvin, yes. Yeah. Alvin. And so were Herb and Alvin, were they pretty much operating partners? Yes. Although Herb was more involved in, in day-to-day operations, um, not as involved as, you know, future generations like myself. Um, and, and Alvin was more looking for, you know, opportunities for investment, other companies. And what did you do when you first came to the company? What was your function? I uh, worked in the production control department. I, I was basically out in the shop expediting parts. Right. Actually, I'll go back a little bit, Pete. Um, in college, they, when I was in college, they had bought a travel trailer company called Mallard. This was in the early 70s, and they were um, – eventually they had 1,000 people making travel trailers at three different plants out in the, in the Midwest, and they decided to open up a, um, a showroom in Boston in Randolph because they had an old lumberyard that they had been involved in, and they had this piece of land, and they said, we're going to have this beautiful showroom outside of Boston, and they, they fixed up the building, and they started shipping in trailers from Wisconsin, and I think they sold a trailer, and I remember – I, I was home from college at that point and I was having dinner with my mother and father and probably brother and sister. And my father said, well, we, we just realized that we have nobody to actually service the trailers. If something goes wrong with them or 
to show a, you know, a new owner how to hook them up or anything. And so I was in the trailer business um, summers from 1972. Was that your first job? That was my first job with the family. Oh, yeah. What was your first job before that? I, I picked blueberries up here in New Hampshire for two summers. You're um, kidding. And got paid by the court. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I think we, I, I don't recall, but I remember in a really good week, we could make maybe 30 or $40 killing yeah. ourselves out in the fields. Yeah. 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 So when you um, when you worked in the family business helping out with the trailers, were you a good employee? I think I was very naive, but I think I was a very good employee. I mean, I, I worked hard and I tried to do a good job. I think I, I thought I knew a whole lot more than I did. I, th I think back of having put hitches and brake systems on cars to tow the trailers and I certainly hope that they all worked okay. They seemed to when they <laughs> went out of the shop. So, so Herb and Alvin were, sounds like, real estate investors who were repurposing the real estate for operating purposes, which is smart. And you came into the business at a point. Did you sort of have an aha moment like, okay, well, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I'm going to be a business owner when I do this. I, I don't think so. I think maybe my if there was some revelation, I'd probably been working in Entwistle for a number of years in production control. I, you know, worked in purchasing. I ran the shop for a while. And um, the the vice president of the company at that time, who I was working for, um, was sort of the head contract administrator for government products, which is a very, very small part of the company at the time. And I started working for him as the contract administrator. And um, I said, geez, I think we could really do a much better job if we had a dedicated group of people for government products. And I asked uh, Mary Lou if she would come over and be our kind of unit administrative assistant, you know, secretary at the time. And I uh, grabbed a guy out of purchasing and the three of us went into a little room that we shared and all we did is sell stuff to the government, and I just loved it. I, I found it much more interesting than the commercial business, which was wire and cable that we were in. And, of course, now the, the company is almost totally turned around, and we do some commercial business, but, you know, a huge percentage of what we do is the uh, government products. So was it um, – did it feel tr um, challenging or tricky to you to come out of college and to come into a business that your uncle and your father owned and ran? I, I guess I was not aware of how political it was going to be. And they were, they were very, very good to me. Um, I, I guess I just didn't realize that dealing with that generation, how little input you would actually have. Because of course you come out of college and you are just full of piss and vinegar and want to change the world and get things done. And their advice, which was wise, and I, I do tell people that now is, you know, we, we want to listen to you. We want to make changes. We want to hear your ideas. But try to figure out how things work now before you go changing them. And they gave you some rope. A little bit. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. More, more and more as the years went on. And did they get along pretty well as business owners? They got along as business owners and as brothers and best friends for forever and ever. Wow, that's great, isn't it? Yeah, a great example for the family, actually. 
And and Entwistle, which was a family business with, um, you know, half owned by one side and half owned by the other and a number of people at work. And, um, you know, as of course, as the generations go on, the, the size of the families get bigger and bigger. And we've been complimented a number of times um, on how unusually well the family gets along. And, and that's really a great compliment. Yeah, I mean, I think that you are an unusual situation in our experience of where you came into a pretty focused family running the business and you've turned it into not only a family business, but a professionally managed family business, I think. Thank you. So looking back on your experiences, do you find it more satisfying to lead or to be part of a team? I think it's a lot easier to be part of a team and a lot more challenging to lead, but I think the rewards are certainly that much greater if, if you're the leader and things work out. Um, it takes a lot of generosity to lead because it's so, uh, it takes a lot of courage and generosity because uh, those of us who lead know we don't always know we're right. Oh, no. <laughs> but, you, but you also have to. Um, Make sure that everybody thinks you know that you're right. You you need to go into it with a lot of confidence because people don't want to follow somebody who doesn't think they know what they're doing. And do you find that that sense of having to lead, and I say having to because for people like you or for others, sometimes it feels like a responsibility that you have to lead at some point. Do you find that that bleeds over to other roles in your life where you also feel that sometimes you have to lead? Um, my, my wife will quite often say to me, not so much because I, I take the hint out that I'll come home and after a few minutes, she will say, this is an entwistle and I don't work for you. <laughs> I'm really confused by that. <laughs> <laughs> and I will laugh and I will recalibrate myself. So, yeah, I think if you're used to leading, you, you tend to take a leadership role wherever you are, sometimes appropriately and sometimes not. So we'll talk a little bit about the enterprise value capturing in a little bit, but here you are at a point where you probably are thinking about the next chapter with more acuity than perhaps in the past. Sure. Um, If you were going to take a year or two and learn a new skill, what would it be? That that's a really good question. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I have some other things that are going on for the next year or two. And so I'm not sure that um, skill is the right thing, but um, um, I'm involved with the Boys and Girls Club uh, in Metro West, which is a fairly large organization. I've agreed to become president of that starting in the spring, president of the board, chairman of the board. So I think that's going to take up some time. So um, maybe the skill I'm, I'm trying to learn is um, helping a nonprofit. And I don't think that's, you know, it's, it's, it's not woodworking and it's not anything like that. Um, but I think there's some skills to be learned there and learn, learn their business and see if I can help them out. I'm actually looking forward to that. Yeah. Yeah. I um, have always found that in my not-for-profit leadership, and I have done quite a bit of it actually, that um, my not-for-profit leadership very much informed my for-profit leadership and vice versa. Yes. 
so that's great. That's great to I, hear. I may be calling you for some advice on the nonprofit leadership. So at some points over the past couple of years, you and I have had some brief discussions where you had had some thoughts actually about transitioning out of the business. Yet, as we went through the work together that we did, it turns out that as of the moment, you're kind of more into the business than ever. Tell me about that. It, it does seem that way. <laughs> um, I, I, I remember being in a meeting with um, Stephen. Yep. And I think at that point we had, you know, we were, we were certainly hoping we would make a deal with Taryn and NTC um, as our partner. And um, he said, well, you know, like, how long are you thinking of working to me? And I just blurted out and said, oh, I don't know, about three years or so. And Stephen looked at me like I was crazy. And he was right, by the way. That was, that was maybe I should have thought about that a little bit more. Um, but I am. I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying it. Um, but I am looking forward to backing off a little bit, you know, over the next year and then, and then after that. And um, as I thought about it and refined it, that, that's a long time, um, I think, for me to stay around. And um, so we, we've, you know, worked out a, a very agreeable arrangement where I'm going to be around for a, a couple of years and available on, you know, in the third year. Um, and but I was somewhat flattered that I was asked to, you know, stay around for the transition. And obviously, it's it's the only real place I've ever worked, and I feel very um, strong and very loyal to our employees. And I think it it really helped them also, knowing that you know the same crew was going to be around for a period of time. And um, I think that made the decision a lot easier. Yeah, I think that you've got that just right from my experience, which is that if you, as the longtime leader, can say. We're going to have a change in ownership, but I am going to be here for a period of time. It's such anxiety relief for someone who says, what's going to happen now? Right. We, we thought about that. I, I anguished over that for months, as um, some of your crew can tell you, that I was just paranoid um, about the fact that a transaction was going to get out to the public and that the employees were going to find out. And I was counseled and coached and encouraged to bring more people into the, um, the circle of trust. And every time I did, I was amazed at how wonderful the employees were and said, well, that's terrific. What took you so long? Yeah. And we're so, you know, we're so happy to hear that. And, um, and even when we had the, you know, the, the, the general announcement, it was totally different than what I had expected. I wish I had listened listen to you better. During the <laughs> so, um, but right, we, we got the employees together on a Monday morning and said it's business as usual. And, um, you know, we have a we have a new owner, but the rest of us are still going to be here. And um, have a nice lunch and we'll see you afterwards. And then they came in Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and went to work and they came back the next Monday and everything was the same. And as time goes by, I think they realize that, um, you know, we have a good long-term partner and that's the way it's going to be. Great. It worked out really well. If you're a seasoned, successful entrepreneur, owner, manager, are you challenged by this piece? At Bigelow, we believe entrepreneur, owner, managers are the most powerful pro-social and pro-economic force on the planet. And it's for that reason that we dedicate our firm, Bigelow, 
to working exclusively with you. You can find all of the episodes of this podcast on Bigelow's website, which is BigelowLLC.com. So, you know, axiomatically, organizations work best when everyone sort of thinks, acts, and feels like they're almost like an empowered owner of the company. And you've run this company for a long time, what, almost 40 years? Um, Well, I've been at the company for over 40 years, and I guess I've been really running it um, for a dozen years or better. And so Um, how how did you achieve having your employees feel that way? We have a kind of an unusual employee base in that um, the average employee in Hudson's probably been there over 25 years. The plant in Virginia is a little shorter because we we had a big um, increase in um, employees over the last few years on a particular program. But but a lot of their key people have been there, you know, for 20, 20 years and over also. And um, we've just always treated them with respect and, and try to encourage them to uh, make decisions when they can. And we're always there to, you know, help them and give them advice. But um, micromanaging 200 people doesn't work very well. So so you, that, that's an incredible life lesson, right? How did you learn that? Who did you learn that from? Did you have mentors? I think uh, Tom Robinson, who was president before me, who I worked with for many years, felt that way. He, he wasn't trying to hide anything from me. He was trying to teach me as much as he possibly could because um, it, it was good for both of us. And that, yeah. that's really a great lesson. Was he a family member? No. No, Tom was hired back when the company was in um, Providence, Rhode Island, and um, he had bought a car wash in his 20s after graduating from Providence College and got a part-time job in the stockroom just in the winter because you can't run a a car wash in New England very effectively and worked his way up to be president of the company. And I think that's just an amazing um, tribute. And if Tom can do it, why can't anybody else? It is an amazing tribute. It isn't done very often. You think about a family-owned business where he actually, he probably reported to Herb and Alvin, right? He did, yes. Yeah. So the, here he, he's reporting to Herb and Alvin, and here he's got Carrie working for him. And that's right, which I, I think that was I imagine what he must have been thinking the first day I showed up at work. <laughs> <laughs> what am I going to do with him? <laughs> well, we, we, were, uh, we were great friends, still are, and... Um, um, I owe an awful lot to, you know, to what Tom taught me and just his his management style, which is, you know, let people do as much as they can. Is Tom still with us? He is. He's retired. He's down in Florida. Um, but, yes, he is still with us. That's great. Great. Yeah. So um, do I remember you have three children? We have three children and a bunch of grandkids that are scattered all over. They're in Massachusetts and Minnesota and Arizona, and we don't see them nearly as much as we would like to, which is one of the things on my list of things to do when COVID's over. So how have some people would say that there's an unavoidable choice to be made about being a good parent compared to being a super successful professional as you have been? How have you, how did you navigate that? How did you think about that? Um, so one of the very first things you asked me was, you know, the chapters of my life. Yes. 
So my, um, I will refer to life with my first wife as chapter, whatever it was after college, maybe that was chapter three. Chapter three, yeah. Yeah, and I'm not sure I was nearly as good a husband and father during that chapter. Uh, I, I always tried to be a good dad, and I was around, and you know, I because of the nature of the business, it wasn't like I traveled a lot and I was away. But um, it w- it was pretty clear in my mind that when I was at work, that's where I was, and that's what you did, and that's what came first. And um, I think that can be you know can be hard on a family, and I think. When I look around now, because we have a bunch of young people who work for us, some family members, some others, and they have little kids. And I try to remember back um, to what I was like, and I try to be better now than I was then about balancing work and um, and family, because it's not an easy thing to do. Do you think that the people that you're seeing now, the younger uh, generation, do you think they're doing a good job at it? Um, I think... I think they do a much better job at prioritizing their family. And I, and I think things are very different now. Most of the people that we have working for us, male or female, um, who are married or, you know, have a significant other, have children, whatever, um, they're both working. Yeah. And that's really very different from the 70s and 80s and 90s when I was well, maybe it was changing in the 90s, but it was very different from when I was a young man. Yeah. And so I think that's had a lot to do with it, that, um, you know, your your spouse's job could easily be as important as your job. It certainly is as important to them. Yeah. And you have to recognize that and, you know, and accept it if you want to re- retain these good employees. If you make life miserable for them, they don't want to work for you. Yeah. Particularly uh, complex right now, right? Because you have to say, there's so many uh, working moms, not even single moms, married working moms where, you know, they have an extra responsibility at home. Most of them, I'm sure. Yes. And yet right now schools are not in together. And so it's a real, that's a big, big, big responsibility. Oh, it's right. And, and you know, we've all been on innumerable Zoom meetings yeah. and, um, you know, where the kids go screaming past in the background. Sure. And it's just it's just a fact of life these days. It's it's the way it is. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I think it's been good for us. I think it's been good for us old guys um, because it 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 really adds some a really good example to what these people are going through all day long. I I have you know kids who have kids at home and they're um, they range in age from thirteen down to one, give or take the grandkids. And if you're trying to entertain children all day and keep them on a computer and try to learn something, my job's a piece of cake by comparison. So do you, um, does Entwistle have a workforce today? Today is uh, January 25th, 2021. Today, which is distributed. Are some people at the office, some people are at home, and, and is that the way it is right now? No, pretty much everybody's at the office. Being in manufacturing, you know, the the vast majority of people um, are out in the factory anyway. They can't do that. Um, We try to be very flexible with, you know, people doing things at home when they can, but it doesn't doesn't work very well for us. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, 
Carrie, you're making a lot of observations, which make me want to say that you seem like a really good student. You look back on <laughs> like, some chapters of your life and you look back on your, your dad and your uncle as, as mentors. And were, were you, uh, were you good at school? Um, not particularly. <laughs> no. And, um, I, I really wasn't, I, I was okay in high school, but I think I was okay because I did a lot of other things, not necessarily, you know, scholastically. Uh, my first college experience was terrible. I mean, I just wasn't ready for college. I'm a, I'm a firm believer that after kids graduate from high school, they should do a gap year or two, whether that's military or, you know, civilian conservation corps, or go teach. Yeah. Um, build a school. Wait, wait. You said your first college experience was not good. What did you mean by your first college experience? The first college I went to. Okay. I, I was uh, fairly unceremoniously asked to depart for some period of time until I decided what I wanted to do when I grew up. And, and did that happen? Well, it, after I left, I, I actually worked at Entwistle for basically a year. And having gone to work um, seriously at that point, yeah. um, going back to school seemed like the easiest thing in the world. So I, I think it's a really good experience. And I've, I've tried to encourage people when they can to take some time off and do something. Um, I, I wish the country as a whole did it like many other countries do. Yeah. yeah. By the way, none of my kids did. So that goes to show you that your own children don't necessarily listen to your advice. Well, that's for sure. But... <laughs> Uh, you know, people people are different, but it sounds like you found a, what your own way. And did you did you study business in college? I did. Yeah, I, did. I got a, an undergraduate, you know, business uh, degree. And and if you had a chance to do it over again, would you study business in college? I'm not sure. Now, I when when people ask me or kids ask me because we we have a. We sort of have a um, an unwritten rule at Entwistle that if if one of your parents works at Entwistle and you want a job in the summer, you can come work there. Summers and you know holiday vacations. It's a nice way for us to we clean up and we paint things and we move things around, and it's nice for the kids to actually get out in the factory and work. I think it's it's great experience, and and so occasionally, you know, when it, when a a kid will ask me, you know, like, what do you think I should do? Or, or one of the parents should say, what do you think? My, you know, my kid's not really a student. What do you think he should do? Um, I would be much more inclined to say, do whatever you want to do as an undergrad and then go to work for a couple of years and do something and then go back to grad school. And it doesn't really matter. If you want to go into business, get an MBA after you're out of school for a couple of years. Um, Boy, I just wholeheartedly agree with that. I just feel like <laughs> if you can have the courage as a student, any parents can afford to help you financially. Mm -hmm. Right. But if you can do that. And if you wanted to study, I don't care, philosophy, religion or art or whatever, because if you're going to go to medical school, you're going to go to, I mean, if you're going to be a physician, you're going to go to medical school. If you're going to be going to business, right. you're going to get an MBA. Sure. You're going, to you're going to go to law school. So why not have that liberal arts undergrad? That's so mm -hmm. great. But we, we have a, um, a kid who's working for us right now part-time because he's, he's about to graduate from college, and he's going to have a, um, um, a degree in engineering. And I said, well, that's terrific. Good for you. And, you know, it's like kind of what, what do you think I should do with it? And I said, well, I think you should go practice as an engineer somewhere for a couple of years, and then you should go get your MBA. And then you'll really be a valuable commodity. And I said, if you, if you want to check it, the people who have engineering 
and business degrees and how they do. Um, so what, what you do as an undergrad and what you do later on doesn't have to be the same thing. The background can be helpful, though. Are, do any of your kids have entrepreneur tendencies? Well, my son's working for me right now. And um, he's running our purchasing department, which is a big part of Entwist. And I think he does a great job. And I think we're, we have a new CFO and they're getting ready to get rid of me in a couple of years, which is a good thing. Um, I, I think there's a lot of opportunity to do something there. I'm not sure he's actually made up his mind what he wants to do long term and good for him. Um, my daughter's a single mom of, of eight-year-old twins, so she has her hands full, work, works part-time. And the third one out in Arizona um, is not so much. He's tried some interesting things, so maybe you could say he was an entrepreneur there, um, but not in the classic sense. N not yet, but they're, they're still relatively young. You don't know. So it sounds like as you are thinking about and dreaming about what to be in your next chapter, who knows? You might be a financier for somebody's uh, entrepreneurial dreams. Could happen. Yeah. Could happen. Yeah. Absolutely. So as you think about the next chapter, Carrie, um, do you have some unfulfilled desires that you kind of wish, like if you hadn't gone right from college right back to Entwistle and carried on for the 30 ump years or 40 years, that you would have done something else? Would you have picked up a paintbrush or would you have jumped on a sailboat or would you... Are there some things that you say, now, damn it, I'm going to do this? <laughs> I, I I, do love the water and I do love boats, but, um, you know, we're, we're up here in a big lake in New Hampshire, and that kind of fulfills my, my um, you know, my, my boating desires for now. Um, I love to ski, and I'm hoping to have some more time skiing in some varied places. I've never really skied in Europe. Um, there's a whole bunch of areas out west that I've never tried. And um, it seems like it would be a great opportunity to do that and visit the grandkids at the same time. So that's that's sort of on my bucket list. What are you hoping to let go of? Um, that's a good question. I don't feel like overly burdened now with anything. Obviously, with in the years ahead, as I scale back and the time I spend at Entwistle, I will let go of those responsibilities. Although I, I feel pretty good about the team that's coming in and being able to do that. So I think that's, that's a really good thing. Um, I'm not sure what else to let go of. I, I don't feel like I'm overly burdened with anything right now that I have to let go of it. Well, that's great. Yeah. So if you just accept for a minute, just a, an observation, which is, you know, even though guys like you and me spend a lot of time trying to figure out facts and data and analysis, that as, as humans, we don't really operate at that level of analysis. We really operate and we live our lives at the level of feelings. We'll talk about emotions and feelings. That's, that's you know, it's how we feel is how we actually live our lives. What's your favorite emotion? Oh, I uh, just, is, is laughter an emotion? Just that, that kind of, you know, release when you, it just absolutely cracks you up and you just laugh uncontrollably just because you're seeing the joy in someone else or someone tells you something so funny. I mean, I, whether you're with the kids or the grandkids or your wife or good friends or whatever, 
to have a good laugh, you certainly forget about anything else that's going on. So I guess that would be right up there. That's a great one. And you must look at your grandchildren once in a while and, and you and your wife look at each other and burst out laughing. They crack us up all the time. Absolutely. When, when you're with them constantly, but even over Zoom, um, you know, when you when you can't be with them immediately, they they are just the most they're just the funniest little humans and they come up with the most outrageous things, which is awesome. And what's your least favorite emotion? Oh. Um, I'm going to have to think about that for a minute. Um, mine is, um, mine is uh, my favorite emotion I think would be, um, I don't know what to call it. Awe or uplifting, kind of like this morning on the beach, I saw the sunrise and I was like, yeah, it's, I have this feeling of awe. My least favorite emotion would be either anger or resentment, something like that. If I feel resentment, I feel I sometimes ask my brain, why is my brain having that emotion? I, uh, I, I'll, I won't take resentment, but I will take anger. And um, I work really hard not to get angry because I don't lose it very often. But when I do, um, I, I really, you know, I really lose. I really get angry. And I try not to let that happen too much, especially at work. So um, that would be my least favorite. Yeah. And I work hard to control it. Are you a reader? I'm a listener. Um, oh, yeah. I've been um, using the opportunity driving back and forth to New Hampshire at least a couple of times a week to uh, – I'm a, I'm a good audible um, yeah. listener. Are you listening and to anything interesting that you tell the uh, listeners to a, a positive enterprise value about? Anything that, that interests you at the moment? Actually, it, the, the one I'm reading right now is something called The Guest List. And I think, you know, you publish your monthly thing and people recommend books that they've read. Yes. I don't remember who it is, but I think it was on your recommended list. And oh, yeah. my, my wife actually recommends most of my books because she and I have very similar likes and dislikes for the most part. And um, she read and she said, oh, the book was great. You should listen to it. And I am. So um, thank you. Like I said, I don't remember who it was. But uh, so I do take some of your advice. <laughs> <laughs> so um, in this group of listeners, uh, I would say that probably um, high achievement is pretty common. And as people listen to this audio podcast, they're probably thinking, well, there's Pete talking to Carrie. And Carrie's been working in this business for 40 years. And we haven't heard anything about it, but Bigelow sounds like they've helped do a transaction. It all sounds super successful. And here's a guy that's built this business. It's all successful. Has it all been successful? Or would you point out that there were a couple of times where you stubbed your toe or were there some disappointments that you look at now and you especially think were, were helpful learnings? Oh, absolutely. No, at the, at the end of the day, you, you have to be right more times than you're wrong, and then you can be tremendously successful. But not everything was. Uh, back in the oh, late 80s and early 90s, we decided to get into the, um, the specialized vehicle business for the military. And we were building tow tractors and forklifts and um, cranes and all kinds of things. And it was a disaster for us. We, we were shipping money out the door with everyone we built. Um, and we learned that we learned many things from that experience, but we learned that um, you can't chase jobs by price. 
You, you know, you need to sell things for what you can produce them for and what you can sell them for, not what somebody else can. And uh, clearly, we're not we're not a maker of vehicles. Although one thing that came out of it is we do still build the fire trucks that go on board the Navy carriers, which we're extremely proud of, and you know, long long legacy of producing those. Um, so no, the company was in was I won't say in real trouble, but we were we had some really really rotten years. Um, the travel trailer business was a um, a very difficult period for us because. Um, we were we were really in it. We had ten times as many people making travel trailers as anything else. And the first gas shortage of the mid 1970s came along, and what was the last thing anybody was going to do was buy a travel trailer. How did you exit it? Um, well, we we closed the plants down, um, and um, in some cases, we actually just you know, donated buildings and sold material to um, some of the managers who wanted to be in the business. It was, it was, it was a very scary experience, as you can imagine. Yeah. Um, and went from a thousand people making no money to a hundred people doing okay. Yeah. And, uh, and then, you know, have since built it up from there, of course. Yeah. So, um, and then of course, um, the difficulty of our business is we're quite often asked to, bid on a firm fixed price basis to the government on something that's never been made before. <laughs> so you, have to, you have to design it in your head, come up with enough information that you can price it, um, give the bid to the government, and they have you know five years to exercise options at fixed prices. So as I like to say, you have to guess right more times than you guess wrong. And there, there have been some really... Um, um, interesting experiences over the years saying, how are we going to do that? You know, the good news is we got the job. The bad news is we got the job. Yeah. Right. But thank you for that little uh, run down memory lane about the, uh, the different kinds of vehicles and the, and the RVs, the travel trailers, because really undoubtedly those kinds of stubbing of the toes and that sometimes painful experiences informed who you became and how you led the company uh, in the future. Absolutely. No, even, absolutely. If, even if I was never want to do that again. Oh no! That, well, besides that, but, but we, we learned a lot in the um, in the nineties on, on how you price jobs, and you know the care that it takes to make sure you have enough information to come up with an accurate price that you're going to be stuck with for some number of years. Um, and if you can't, in many cases, you're better off just backing away from the job and. And, and we've taken that lesson to heart and, um, and tried to teach that as we go along. The last question I have here is, so I said to you, you sounded like a really good student. And so if we think of life as a school of teachers and lots of lessons. Then what is life asking you to learn right now? Well, over the last few years, life has asked me to learn a lot about technology because it's changing so quickly that just to keep up with it um, has been challenging for an old guy like me who's been around for a long time. Um, we, we've got a whole bunch of new things going into Entwistle, ERP systems and things like that. And it's, you know, it, it's going to cause me to learn a lot about that. Um, I think in the last couple of years, I've become a much better student of numbers than I was before. 
I, I was always more concerned with the manufacturing side of thing than the number side of things. And um, due to some changes at Entwistle, that's come about. And I, I've liked it. I mean, it's very interesting and um, it's great, but that's, that, that's been um, a learning experience for me also. Got it. Carrie, I want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time and, and being candid with your thoughts on this uh, podcast. I know that a tremendous number of entrepreneur owner managers, that you're giving them a gift and that they're going to feel like that you're making a huge positive impact on them by what they're learning here today. Well, so I, I hope so. I guess I would, the, my last thought, if, if anybody actually listens to this besides you, Pete, <laughs> if, if there's other people who are out there thinking about, you know, what am I going to do? They should talk to somebody three or four years before they think they should talk to somebody. Ah. And if I had to do it all over again, I would have probably talked to you guys a couple of years earlier. And I think it would have been, maybe it would have been less work for me or maybe spread the work out a little bit. Um, but there's a lot to learn about what your options are and don't wait till the last minute to do it. Preparation. Preparation, exactly. Well, great. Great. Thank you for that last thought. I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. We believe that entrepreneur owner managers are the most powerful pro-social and pro-economic force on the planet. And it's for that reason that we dedicate our firm Bigelow to working exclusively with them. At Positive Enterprise Value, we freely share our learning so that you can absorb from the experiences of other private business owners with skin in the game, just like you. Bigelow is widely regarded as the M&A advisor that deals exclusively with high-performing entrepreneur owner managers. Our scrappy independent boutique firm only offers one service, that is to help build and someday capture enterprise value. You can find all of the episodes on this podcast on Bigelow's website, which is bigelowllc.com. <laughs>